scared of hell personally wasn't enough. When I had my first kid, now the possibility of a person I love more than anything being separated from me, most importantly God, and in pain and distress forever, maybe even fire, my kid burning forever. Hell, I don't even like when one of my kids have a bad day. I remember even talking this out with a friend, my angst to the prospect of not having control over my kid's eternal destiny once I started to entertain the possibility of reformed theology due to my influence from, yeah, Mark Driscoll. I was expressing to my friend the fear of my kids either being chosen or not, and he responded with some sort of, I love this guy, by the way, this is not a knock on him, some sort of passing on a blessing that was apparently backed by scripture, which due to the explanation or the verse being kind of fuzzy and then just the obvious unfairness of the other kids who don't grow up with that blessing of believing parents, the conversation didn't help like I thought it would. I remember my plans for systematizing my kids with theology. I was set, man. I had everything figured out, obviously. So now my only job was passing it on to my kids, which in retrospect, it's crazy. I was even under that delusion given the many authors and teachers I respected and a lot of them I still respect who were teaching completely different perspectives of super important stuff. But I had it all figured out on my end. What I wasn't going to teach my kids was mystery, the impossibility of knowing, and the opportunity to trust a God who loves you no matter what. About three kids in, my theological certainties came crashing down hardcore. But my parenting gig was in full force. The very thing I found the most important to pass on to my kids, I felt I was occasionally coming up for air in this theological crisis, not knowing what I believed and scared. And thus, I hadn't anything to pass down to my kids. Well, did. I just didn't know that at the time because I was raised on faith that is based on certainties. So years would go by. The very years I had planned on giving them a sealed tight package on eternal God, I couldn't help but to feel extremely weighted down by all of this. As I found foundation after my deconstructing, I've I found peace with all of this as well. I want to share five things I really believe now or have done with my kids. First of all, I believe that God would be very crazy to put the bulk of responsibility on me for spiritual guidance that will amount to these kids' eternal destiny. God knows in the grand scheme of things, I don't know if I know much more than they do. But if I don't raise them right, they suffer for it? Nope. This can't be the God that we saw in Jesus' life. I tell them that God loves you unconditionally. Why would you ever leave him? And if you ever walk away, I tell them, He'll go after you just like leaving the 99 for the one. Nothing can separate you from God's love. When you're faithless, he's faithful. You know, scripture stuff. Number three, I'm generous with the following phrase. I don't know. Here's what I think. Number four, perfect love casts out fear. I'm able to love them better as a father can and should because I'm not ruled by fear. And then lastly, we've taught our kids how to love. How they even love people culture tells them that they shouldn't. And I marvel at how I used to believe that correct beliefs were the most important thing when it's made clear to us that the most important thing is loving God and loving others. And oh yeah, true love is God's love for us, not ours for him. So part of me, I can't escape it. There's flashes of guilt for not being a better guide 
for my kids. But then I realized that my plan, my whole life for my kids was based on a premise of me having certainties. So God is love. He'll never leave you. I believe the testimonies written about Jesus and his resurrection. And oh yeah, I don't really know much more, but here's what I think. But my plans originally were to teach them that God can be figured out, only setting them up to realize things can't be put together like a puzzle. And then possibly they reject faith altogether because their dad was a freaking liar. (laughs) I was reading a book called Girl Talk, God Talk by Joyce Ann, and it is a case study on adolescent girls and their interaction with faith, church, God, and just reading through these memoirs and interviews of these girls. I'm just shaking my head thinking, how in the world, how in the world did I think that these high school girls would, would die and go to hell if they didn't have the proper beliefs? in place. The other day, Rosa, my oldest, we were talking about faith and I said, so what exactly do you believe? And she looked at me like I was crazy. She was like, um, I, I mean, I believe in God. And <laughs> the look on her face was like, you know what I believe. I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? I believe that he's God and he died for us. And She's just kind of like, why are you asking me this? I realized her faith was so simple. And honestly, there was a healthy envy that things were not that simple for me at that age. But I do have a kid that is not afraid of God and has a true belief in God's love for her. And so, hey, that's good enough for me. I'll tell you one bit of comfort that I have And it's weird just knowing that my peers and my friends are going through the same sorts of things with raising kids, having the same sorts of fear. And I want to let you know that the patrons of this podcast, we have a exclusive podcast feed that's going to be in full force in February and a corresponding place to chat with other patrons. And we will definitely be having some discussions on parenting, especially for those of you that are deconstructing. On February the 2nd, you patrons will get to join a live discussion with our guest today. We're going to talk about a lot of this stuff. Here's a quick little snippet of what's to come on this bear feed, and then we'll get to our talk. Love you guys. Peace. Ever thought how unfair it is for your spouse to depend on you for his or her happiness? Did you know when you stress about things you have no control over, you're actually using energy you need for other things? Science, baby. Has anybody ever heard of the Headway app? It's been a game changer for me and my mental health. Did you know teens don't have the tools to process things in a way that doesn't drive you crazy? They need training not to be assholes. And accepting this is half the battle. Do you know my therapist told me during my mental health crisis that I was afraid of not being afraid of hell? (laughs) She was right. Life is crazy busy. It's hard being intentional about the important things. But what if you could pick up a few things all through the week with a quick two-minute listen? And don't forget, Liz, you can interact with other listeners as well or not you can be a fly on the wall but if you're listening you're a part of a listening community that's kind of cool from parenting to marriage from doubting god and deconstructing to seeking the spiritual and having more of god in your life hey it's ellen there will even be an extra fully produced episode of pastor with no answers that won't be released to the public 
Hey, don't forget the monthly insights from our resident licensed therapists and some other insights from experts in their fields. Thanks, Joy. And fun talks about music, even the secular kind made by Satan himself. Joey, you're a mess. Extending theological conversations with guests of Pastor with No Answers offline. Unless you have this podcast feed that we're talking about, then it's not offline. Dummy. <laughs> come on, man. Why do you got to call her dumb? Hey, where, where'd you come from, Jed? Pain. Hold on, guys. Hold up. All right, story. Go ahead, Ellen. Are you a Christian? Don't go to church, but still want some kind of spiritual connection? Uh, don't forget about the former Christian, now atheist, like me. I'm a regular on the podcast and really like this community. A lot of us go to church, but still need this outlet, especially because my doubts, questions, even frustrations with God are welcome to not judge. Making improvements in our lives together a little bit at a time. It's learning together on the go. A community that is connected atypically, and it's here for you all the time and when you want it. Bearing with one another. Feeding one another by sharing our experiences, mistakes, and things we picked up on this life journey. By the way, I feel kind of a rebirth in my Christian faith, and I'm looking forward to sharing more about that with you guys on here. It's the Bear Feed Podcast and Bear With Community. 10% of your contributions fight human trafficking through the Exodus Road. Let's go. All right, Becca McNeil, it is good to have you on Pastor With No Answers, and I'm pretty sure that as I tell you a little bit about myself, probably earlier than when I'm going to stop, you could probably say time out, I totally get it, but I still am going to try to be very brief because my listeners hear this stuff all the time, but basically I was the kid that repented after lunch every every lunch period because I didn't oh. witness to anybody. Once I discovered the ability to pleasure myself, I really felt like, okay, I am, I'm going to go to hell because I, I cannot stop. Like, I absolutely yes. cannot stop. And so I get into college and, you know, I'm still straight and narrow. And obviously I, I fall a little bit here and there. We're all human, but I'm getting my theology fine tuned man like just to to the t i mean i am figuring out theology i am figuring out life i've got answers for everyone and my first daughter was born i've i've got a picture of her sitting on my lap and uh i'm i'm reading her theology i'm just like this is just so easy like i know exactly how to raise these kids like i'm good and that is my only child that remembers just a little bit of those times of here's how it works. Here's what hell is. Here's what heaven is here. She's the only one that remembers all the other kids grew up with. I wouldn't even necessarily say mystery dad as much as kind of scared dad and mm. not really knowing exactly uh, how to parent when Literally, it felt like the floor drops. Now, I haven't been in that frame of mind probably for the last four years, maybe three years or so, but it was it was scary for a while. Your your book uh, is one of those books that I haven't gotten to that I, it is a must read because I I still feel like it's something I'm figuring out. But if you can't figure out God and you can't figure out theology and that's not black and white, then I would assume how we pass along whatever to our kids isn't either. How's that exactly. for an intro, Becca? <laughs> yeah, you said, I mean, that's pretty much the summary of my book. So um, if that was fun for you guys, go buy it. It's 250 pages of that. I mean, first of all, I know that kid because I was that kid who yep. I 
remember my first plane flight home from college thinking that if I didn't share the gospel with my seatmate that the plane was going to crash because Ooh, that's I, a step further. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not not like for sure, but I was just constantly trying to be so good that God had to be good to me. I technically believed in grace. I'd grown up as a reformed kid and whatnot, but I had this like underlying thought of if you're not of service, if you're not doing, if you're not of service to the kingdom, then you become expendable. And so I was constantly trying to be of service. And so similar. I remember just crying because I didn't feel like I could completely rid myself of pride. Even my repenting needs repenting of, like that was big in our church culture and home culture. And it, oh, I can't even repent without feeling proud of myself for repenting. And now I need to repent again. And it was just like, I was a tortured, I you would never know that because I was functional and had, for, you know, I was a cheerleader, all that stuff. But I had this like tortured element of my soul that was just constantly needing to perform to feel okay. I don't know if you knew this, but, it, and, and it sounds like you had this as well, but I, I used to be a part of a podcast called Bad Christian, and we we self-published this. So basically, I write about this kind of stuff, and there is a scientific word for what you just described is scrupulosity. And it oh is the... Uh, yeah, it, it, look it up <laughs> at some point down. because... Yeah, because it, it involves like a tortuous ongoing fear in the context of religion and a constant feeling of having to do something about it. So mm -hmm. listen to this verse and how it just screwed with me for so long. It was the one where it says, if you know the good to do and you don't do it, then mm -hmm. that's a sin also. And yeah. so I would do something like, you know, I, I'd be a youngster, have my first job. I remember I was helping my boss move from one location to the next and I was holding this glass shelf and it chipped. And I was like, oh my gosh. And obviously you and I as adults, we know that's no big deal. But at that moment, I was like, I can't tell him I'm, not, I'm so scared. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. when I got home, I basically felt so guilty. And I was like, I got to call him, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So six months later, and it would be the most bizarre thing ever to call him. And, but I couldn't get rid of it. I was like, well, and yeah. I am doomed. I am condemned to hell until I make things right with this guy. And, right. and that is, in my opinion, and it's a theme that we talk about a lot. And I really am curious because I, I, I see this so black and white and it may not be, but I don't know how we raise kids in a healthy, non traumatized way if hell is the place that we were taught it was. I'm at a place where I don't believe that way anymore. And mm -hmm. I don't know how not to traumatize my kids if I still believe that way. And I talk about that. I have a whole chapter devoted to hell in the book. <laughs> because for us, we were, I will never forget this. We were driving out to date night, my husband and I, and we got somehow on the topic of what are we going to tell them about hell? My views had started to change but had not. Tell me the age of your kids around my age, ballpark. Uh, my kids are eight and six. Currently and is, or in this story? Currently. In the okay. story, it was about two years. It was while I was writing the book, actually. Okay. So it was, and that's probably what brought up the conversation, honestly. Yep. As an adult, you your mind can change on a lot of things. Hell is a big one without you having to really address it. You can kind of just decide like, yeah, eternal conscious torment doesn't, sound plausible to me, right? Like it doesn't jive with a lot of things. Somehow condemning like 
the majority of the world to hell, the majority of humanity to, this just seems wrong. Right. For not figuring out the puzzle. For not, yeah. For being born in the wrong place at the wrong time or having the wrong person force you to do, like what? And it also just, the more I read, the more I was like, there's not really a clarity about what this is. You know, it's described in different ways. It's somewhere God can go and God is, but at the same time, it's the absence of God. And like, what? This is absurd. You can kind of do all that as an adult and go on this journey and not address it. It doesn't, hell does not come up in the daily life of your average adult very often, other than as like an occasional minor, like mild swear. Then you have kids and they want to know what happens when you die and someone will bring it up, you know, because there's some people out there who are just very comfortable with the idea of heaven and hell and will spout it off like it's no big deal. And even if you believe in eternal conscious torment as as hell, it seems like something you should be really grave and like sad about. But people yes. just will be like, well, you know, you got to love Jesus and, and he's going to save you from hell. And it's like, you just throw that out there. Like those same people would never talk about child molestation with the same like glib tone. Right. right. I'm writing this chapter and it was, I was about to write the chapter, I think. And I had the conversation with my husband about, well, what are we going to tell our kids? We can either, and I, I recount this conversation in the book. We can either go with what we heard because if it's wrong or if it's right, then we definitely don't want our kids to go there. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, if you have to be a little bit anxious in life, it's better than going to hell. Or option two, we don't risk scarring or scaring them or traumatizing them. And we say that heaven is is it where people go. Or we just don't tell them anything <laughs> <laughs> and let this, you know, continue to play out. And at the time, I joke in the book that we were defaulting to number three, because just didn't know what to say. The book was already printed when my son, basically, who was six, just like pinned me down and demanded an answer. It was in that moment that I just kind of looked at him and looked at the situation. He was talking about a friend who was very explicit about not believing in God. It was upsetting for him. And we had to discuss why does it matter if your friend doesn't believe in God and had to decide what am I going to tell him about this? And so no one's more surprised than mine. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I think this is the moment we officially plant our flag in like universalism Mm -hmm. because I love demands that I say, God loves your friend. Love demands that for your six-year-old soul who needs to feel connected and at peace about the people around you. And how can I ask you to love them if I, if God doesn't love them and how can God love them and send them to hell? Right. (laughs) And it just clicked into place. And I was like, this is what we believe. God loves people no matter if they love God or not. It's like people say, yeah, but every, everything falls apart. Then like nothing makes sense. And I'm like, no, wait, wait a second. What what I stood on for decades and what you're standing on right now is the one that makes absolute no sense that in one breath we're saying God loves you, you are beloved, he died on a cross for you, but if you don't figure out in this short duration of time here on this earth how everything works and find it in your heart to lay down your life perfectly, you're going to suffer eternally like that right there. 
makes just absolute no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, if you look at the construct of hell and heaven as a punishment and a reward, because you want something from people, you want them to believe a certain way, it actually makes a ton of sense. It doesn't make any sense as a worldview based on a loving God. It makes infinite sense as a worldview based on getting compliance and conformity. And I think that has implications for parenting (laughs) because if my kids believe that I love them no matter what, and there's nothing that they can do to change that, our disciplinary structure is very different. It's much more difficult. If they don't believe that there's anything they can do to be shunned or pushed away from our family, not that there's no consequences, just the over-discipline that many of us grew up with in the name of teaching us how to submit to a God who had us dangling by the spider's throat or whatever Jonathan Edwards said over hell, this very harsh discipline is justified by saving you from the harsher discipline. If I can withhold blessing and goodness and belonging and connectedness from adults or from children, they will do what I want. And that's where I think what we really need to deal with is shame and how we use shame to manipulate and how we use how we deal with our own shame and the shame that we inflict on others to get them to do what we want and in our children and how we have to find other tools and we have to really really invest and cultivate belonging if we're going to raise healthy people who aren't feeling shamed and aren't feeling under threat and aren't obeying because they're anxious but who are participating in cultivating our family environment, the culture of our family, rather than just obeying my rules. And at the same time, if you pull hell from the equation and don't just have it as this kind of facile, like do bad things go to hell, you do have to deal with what do we do with the bad things that we do? Like immediately everybody goes to like Hitler. Well, I don't want to share eternity with Hitler. Probably not, not in any form that you would recognize whatever happens between now and eternity, the evil's not going to be there. So, exactly. Yeah, so, we, we have no idea what that is no, or feels like or anything. No, we have a we have some promises that it is going to be a triumphant love, that there's life that conquers death, that resurrection and redemption, but we don't know what of us that leaves, what survives. <laughs> exactly. But we do need to come up with more redemptive answers for what do we do with the bad that we do. When you hit your sister with the bat and there is a consequence, the consequence for you is not enough. You need to repair. You need to go make amends. And that's like the heart of restorative discipline, restorative justice, peeling back this very punitive rejection, isolation, like casting out the the bad people from our midst whether that's through prisons. I'm not opposed to time out as a cool down thing, but as a like kicking somebody out or withholding goodness. I think a lot parents, a lot of us are probably more familiar with that part is the like, I'm not going to, you'll always be part of our family, but I'm going to withhold my tenderness and care or hell like as the ultimate rejection. And so I believe if we can come up with a more redemption based view of shame and justice, what do we do about the bad that's done? Hell kind of becomes less essential. The whole thing doesn't fall apart. Because right. what they're talking about is if you pull the threat, why would anybody be good? And and I think that that is just a fundamental failure to deal with shame and justice. Have you actually talked to 
parents that that's their response. It's not relief about hell. It's, oh my gosh, then what do I hold over their heads? I mean, that would be awful. Oh my so this is, I'm going to, my poor mother gets thrown under the bus so much in the book. She has, <laughs> my mom and I are fine. We, she's read the book. She loves the book. It's all good. Yeah. I was, so I'm the oldest of my siblings and I gave my parents a pretty easy time. So they had the luxury of holding some pretty rigid views. When the movie Juno came out, my mom, who is like vehemently to this day pro-life, and that movie is a pretty pro-life movie. Um, It is. When it came out, my mom hated it. And I remember being like, mom, how can you, how can you hate this movie? It's like super pro-life and all that. Like it's the abortion protesters win. She said, but it makes being pregnant as a teenager seem not so scary. So what's to stop you guys from having sex and getting pregnant if it's not scary? Wow. If the consequences aren't scary, nothing's going to keep you from doing the, the thing. And, and see, nothing would motivate them to even have a fear about that if it wasn't for hell. I mean, that's, that's oh, yeah. the thing is, if I still held this belief right now, I, I would be parenting constantly out of fear and uh, again, it goes back to if it if it was a reality, I would feel like that's my job. Hey, if, if I've got to scare literally the hell out of them, then that's what I'm going to have to do. Or you're going to have to drill the theology in so rigidly and you're going to have yeah. to build this whole theology around right thinking. That's just as scary as right behavior. I mean, honestly, when I think of all the responses that are recorded to like the early message of Jesus, like these guys who are turning the world upside down that you read in Acts, the desire to kill him, (laughs) you know, the, the bad reaction from the Jewish authorities and whatnot, I kind of think there had to be something more radical than... My version of eternal paradise and punishment is different than your version of eternal paradise and punishment. It's a little nuanced. We're going to add a a Messiah. Like we're going to say that your Messiah is fulfilled. Okay. So this is offensive to you. Everyone else is not really going to care. They'll be okay with it. And yet that's not the early Christianity that we see. We see a, a very offensive Christianity that is very opposite of the way the world works. And the way the world works is punishment and rewards, consolidating power and controlling people. If what they were preaching was so radical, then what's up with the the very bad reaction? If it was just a competitor, you stamp it out, it goes away. When it becomes like the religion that's in power, I think then we start to see it have this more familiar structure that looks a lot like all the other structures <laughs> with yeah. with a like a, an angry god and a hell and a you have to do this to keep him happy and because we have angry kings who demand this kind of justice you have different theories about the atonement coming out of these structures and so feudal structures and whether it starts to look like what we see on earth all my book is is largely a is kind of calling into question, like the who's is the tail wagging the dog here? Are we parenting a certain way because we believe that Christianity or our conservative religion, it speaks a little bit to other beliefs as well. But are we doing this based on a religion that is actually very much informed by power, wealth, economic systems, political systems, right. et cetera. And appearing to be connected to the 
theology. You know, it's not right. It's 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 obviously not like these people are just so in the dark and and duped. It's like, oh, they're teaching me what I'm reading. You know, fir- first you lay down the groundwork of inerrancy, and then next thing you know, it's like, okay, well then I've got to figure out if if this book tells me exactly what to do and exactly what the truth is, then. I've got to figure all that stuff out. And, and, and then you're, all, you're already on a quest that goes nowhere. Exactly. Like you just started a quest that's going to make you have to eventually hit the reset button. I talk like this sometimes, Becca, and then I'm like, I sound, sometimes I sound so full of myself. Like I, I was just, I mean, neat, I mean, neck deep in systematic theology for so many years. And the last thing I want to do is come across like, I think these people are stupid because I don't. I, many people uh, in that camp are, are way smarter than me. But it's like once you see, uh, and this will make sense to you, it's like once you see what we've seen, it's like you just can't unsee it and nothing else will ever make sense well, <laughs> and when it comes to the greater scope of God's love. Yes. You're right. Systematic theologians, brilliant, brilliant people. Also, part of a Western tradition that puts the life of the mind over all ways of knowing has a very like reason down way of knowing when there are other ways of knowing. And I think what happens to a lot of people is that through either a traumatic relation, breach in relationship or a doubt that is then met with skepticism and exiled, feeling disgust at the way people are behaving in the name of that theology, <laughs> right. a different way of knowing comes in. And so I don't, I would never say that I'm smarter than Wayne Grudem. I would never right. say that I'm smarter <laughs> than John MacArthur. I'm not. Have I decided to know my faith from a different way of knowing? Yes, I have. Right. I don't and know about I'm, Wayne Grudem. I don't know where he is right, right. now. John MacArthur, right. I'm fairly confident in saying, is pretty still espoused to a way of knowing. It's not that they're heartless. It's not that they're not, you know, they're not automatrons. I'm saying that when they go to the scripture, when they go to the thought of the knowledge of God, it starts with, I need to understand and have right thinking. And then my emotional response and the way that I live will come from that. And I reached a point where I just said, that method is leading to too much cruelty. It's just leading to cruelty over and over and over again. It's leading to trauma and anxiety and fear and perfectionism, attachment disorders (laughs) over and over and over again. There has to be another way of knowing. And once you open that door, I think you're right. You can't go back through because somebody can give me the syllogism and their interpretation of the scripture. And yes, they can make sense of it, but they haven't acknowledged that they're bringing their lived experience to the way that they're interpreting that. And I can bring my lived experience to it too. (laughs) And just as you and I have clearly said, those guys aren't the dummies. I I equally say, and we're not the rebels. Like, Stop talking about deconstruction like it's people's way of getting underneath God's sovereignty and doing things how we want to do it and making our own religion. It's like, stop talking about something that you obviously haven't gone about yourself. And that's that's fine. I'm not judging you for not doing that, but stop talking about it because you haven't gone through it because I have the least rebellious heart I could ever imagine when it comes to God. That's why I was so petrified of hell because I would do anything. And, and even if it 
it was steered out of fear, I was ready to lay down anything, you mm-hmm. know, to to serve that God and do whatever that God wanted me to do. Exactly. Well, the people who deconstruct the hardest are the people who love Christian. It'd be so much easier to just walk away. So true. There's something real about this. There's something way deeper. Way and I deeper. love it too much. I, I, this has fed me my entire life. It scared the shit out of me, but right. it fed me and it taught me God. And I have received immense internal comfort from that. Same with scripture. I'm with you. There's the chapter before hell in the book is the chapter about the Bible. All roads to being LGBT, LGBTQ affirming, sex positive, science, science affirming, or pro-science, whatever. All of those roads have to go through your view of the Bible. Otherwise, you just slam into the wall and you're right back where you started. So we have to start with the Bible. But my desire to still have a relationship and experience to an experience of the Bible is because I love it. It has been incredibly important to me. And that's why I wanted to be able to read it without feeling my like throat constrict and my panic button go off. Right. I wanted to be able to read Romans. My favorite chapter of the entire Bible is Romans 8, and everything else in Romans was giving me hives. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to have to figure out a new way to read Romans if I still, <laughs> still want to have a relationship with this. Doesn't it start off so good in Romans 8, 1? Oh, man, we're not condemned. Then next thing you know, it's like, what? why is the potter even talking back to the clay? You're, you're condemned for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as equally as it was very scary as this process started, and here I am having these super young kids. Now, I my youngest is in the fifth grade, my oldest a junior in high school. I've got a real good chunk of, I've, I already have a good chunk of time, but I've got a good bit of time going on out from here where, hey, our family stands together with love. Like we really do believe in this guy, Jesus. Uh, I, I, I think maybe one of my kids is struggling a little bit with Jesus being God, but bottom line is we all agree with his teachings. We all are 100% like this is how we treat our neighbors. And I get to tell my kids all the time, this is what I think. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure, but I'll tell you what I think. Like, oh my gosh, it feels so much better than having to feel like you've got it. I mean, these are the most important questions as you could ever utter. And, and you're the parent. You want to give them the perfect answers. And to know for sure that I can't do that is so peaceful. Like, I, I can't give them their answers. When does this guy, Joey Svensson, stop being a kid to God? Like, at what point in my life did I graduate into this place where I can pass on to my kids this knowledge of God? I will always be a kid alongside my kids. (laughs) And isn't that what Jesus said we were supposed to be? Right. (laughs) Isn't that who we are? Like, isn't that how you enter the kingdom of heaven as a child? The other thing that I love is being able to do theology with them making theology participatory. And so when they ask a question, say, well, what do you think? My kids are never at a loss for ideas on how to reconcile (laughs) different, like the question of God's gender, which we've landed on. God is genderless. They're constantly making sense of things. Kids are. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, well, what do you think that meant? You know, why do you think Moses did what he did? Do you think the Jonah story is real? 
Like when they asked, did that really happen? I don't know. What do you think? That process of getting them to actively engage with their, their own faith gives them a more ownership earlier on and B demystifies it a little bit. It takes that anxiety out that makes you want to run for, to an authority. I think a lot of us fall into certainty, like really rigid beliefs and certainty because we just want an answer. You know, we are like children in that regard, the like, just give me an answer. And sometimes kids want that. Like sometimes kids want an answer and you you give them the best you can. But there's also a lot of power in saying it's okay to ask questions and it's okay to be on a journey about this. You don't ever need to go find the most sure person in the room and latch yourself onto them. And all along, we're teaching them that on this journey, just take to heart that this God that we're seeking loves you no matter what. You know, even if you even if you decide for a while, hey, I've just given up on this. I just don't get it. I, I don't want to think about this kind of stuff. God loves you. And you're right. still okay. To to get their heart so rooted in that childlike faith, exactly what you said earlier. That's what we were taught in these cultures. But it was like a technicality. We're telling you this is how it works, but on the day to day, it doesn't work that way. It's just constant fear of hell and yeah. and all of that. You and I, I mean, we're we're not thinking as kids now. There, you know, there is some sort of gap there, and so I think there's certain things that we can slow down with and ponder, just be in awe of that maybe a kid wouldn't see, like you know, the the size of the universe, for example. Mm-hmm. So we have something deep inside of us that's like, that's worthy of reverence, but it's not a legal legalistic reverence. It's just, wow, man, this is you know, holy ground. Thinking that all of this was spoken into existence by God. How have you thought through teaching kids this, this reverence, but not allowing it to turn into legalism? For example, hey guys, we're going to pray and not flipping out when it's just like I said to close your eyes and bow your head. Mm-hmm. Is that my- <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's such a good question. And it's something that that's honestly a thing that my husband and I talk about a lot because he will like, he doesn't <gasps> want them to eat while we bless our food. And I'm right. like, go ahead and eat. I don't care. Right. Like, right. I think wonder is probably the childhood, the developmentally appropriate expression of awe. And I'm not a child psychologist, so I don't know exactly how they develop. I need to give that caveat. But from what I've seen in my own kids and seen in decades of reporting, a decade of reporting on kids in schools and how kids learn and how kids develop, cultivating curiosity and wonder. And my son, my six-year-old son is taking blacksmithing lessons, which means he is in a forge or he's not in a forge, he's at a forge, handling incredibly hot steel, heavy materials. He's making knives. So there's sharp things, there's sparks flying, there's high temperatures. gracious, and he's how old? He's six. Found this amazing group of blacksmiths who like to teach kids. It's so cool. It's terrifying. (laughs) But he's super, super into it. And when he goes in, he's like a different kid. He's still... And he listens, he's meticulous, he's patient. They have to correct him on stuff and he takes correction. He is incredibly respectful of the forge. And that comes from a desire for it, a curiosity about it, and a knowing that 
I I understand that there's power there. And so I'm going to behave appropriately. At the playground, behaving appropriately means look at all that cool stuff. I want to go experience all of it. And, and I see that as like the same childlike response to different environments and different things that they're interested in. And so for me, it's knowing that they're going to have a response to the idea of God. They're going to have a response to things I tell them about God. It may look like the playground. It may look like the forge. It depends on what it is that they're connecting to. And I believe that there will be moments where they connect to and make sense of God's power. And there will be right. moments where they connect to God's love and care and since, you know, making the world fun (laughs) and delight. And I think that it's okay if it looks those different ways. And I don't think that we can get caught up in the moment of, I need it to look like this right now. I can't demand that my son have forge behavior at the playground, certainly not playground behavior at the forge. And so I think part of it is accepting that they they have the capacity to respond to what's really there and what's really they're curious about and they're in awe of. It's just about what part of God they're seeing right now and, right. and not to not worry about it. In the evangelical world that I, I still interact greatly with and was that way for a really long time, it's like we operate off of we have this control as parents. We we make the Proverbs, I think it's raise a kid in, <clears throat> in the right ways and they'll always come come back. We treat that like a formula, like we raise them right. They are going to come back. How many exceptions to the rule do you need to see? Like how many pastors <laughs> yeah, kids yeah. that just went all crazy and, and to you, you would call it just backsliding. And then how many, how many times do you have to see the, the complete reverse? It's like, there's no formula. There's, there's no system here, but you know, for, for me, if I, if I still landed on the doctrine of hell, I would still probably try to hang on to that control just simply out of fear. Acceptance into this system has eternal consequences. It would be unloving not to do that to your kids. Theology has consequences. Yep. Your kids are, are, are still pretty young, uh, six and eight, you said. Mm -hmm. So how do you plan on navigating pop culture? And when I say that, I, that, Back in the day, it's like you hear pop culture and you're like, you write, oh, that is all the the devil's work. <laughs> and I grew up where I, I was the kid that couldn't go on the field trips to go see Denzel Washington's glory because mm-hmm. there was GD in it sort of thing. Mm-hmm, like I was the mm-hmm. kid that couldn't go to those movies, would not be able to get a uh, parental permission sort right. of thing. Same. But what I'm talking about right now is what's age appropriate because right now the pop songs – they are way more sexually charged, oh, way yeah. more graphic, way more than what we grew up in. You know, as a as a I'm I'm turning into the fuddy duddy now. Yes. And so it's just a matter of not saying, hey, these people are bad, this culture is bad, but having an ongoing conversation along the lines of, I don't want this to be your teacher though. Exactly. First of all, not only <laughs> has pop culture gone in a certain direction, but their access to it is just like, I mean, I had to just hope against hope that my parents' date night would happen to fall on the same night as my so-called life so that I could like sneak watch it (laughs) in middle school. (laughs) My kids, if I turn, if I go take a shower, they can find some device, pull up Netflix and be watching something I have not sanctioned 
in a matter of right. seconds, you know, the trust conversation I think is way more important now than ever because we've tried to put all the structures in place to make the temptation not so rough. And it really is going to come down to trust because whatever we can build, they can work around. They're just better at it than we are. So that's one thing. But the other thing, yeah, the conversation about why can't I watch this? Why can't I listen to this? We talk a lot about your brain is growing and we want to make sure that it grows in a way that's healthy, in a way that helps you love others and accomplish your goals. If you let it be shaped by some of the things that are in these movies and in these songs, it's going to make it harder for you to be healthy, to love others, and to accomplish your goals. We don't have video games in the house and we're just, our, they will make you be addicted and that will make it very hard for you to do what you need to be doing. We let them watch a lot of things that my parents, I mean, when I look at the stuff they get to watch, I'm like, wow, okay. We really yeah. are just complete reprobates. Um, but we're not. We have some pretty nuanced decisions. And a lot of it is, is the conversation that's going to come out of this going to hold equal weight to the evil that you're going to see? If the, if the depiction of evil is more, and we're talking like violence, disrespectfulness, like uh, unkindness, so I won't, I don't want to call it evil, but like if the, if the violence, the unkindness or the over-sexualization is more appealing than the good we can get out of it, we're not going to do it. Right. If the overall message that you come away with is something good and that I do want you to learn, then if you see some things, if you see a car blow up in a superhero movie, or you see somebody get punched, or you see somebody wearing like a sexy dress or something like that. Like that doesn't bother me nearly as much as if I can't address that in a way that satisfies how appealing it is and how much you want to imitate that and how much you, that gets into your thinking about this is a good way to be. And yeah. so, and a lot of that is listening to child development experts about how sticky that stuff is in their brain at what age. I tell parents all the time and I, and I, and I tell myself this too, there's no way our kids are going to leave uh, the comfort of these homes without us having scarred them somehow. But yeah. I also truly believe that for some parents, it will be something to mourn more so than others. It's just, sure. I mean, you could come up with two examples really easily to demonstrate that. And just in the scope of God's love, and I'm sure a lot of the theology that you use as far as pointing to God's love for us and applying that to us as parents, what would you say to some of those parents who have actually done, done things that were talking major, major stuff that they just wish like anything they could take back and, and do over, but they can't. I take so much comfort in all of the good child brain scientists and developmental experts who talk about the power of apologizing to your kids. I will practice it daily <laughs> And I think that it can happen in big and little ways at any point. I think there can be times for the sit down with the teenager where you say, I have not given you the kind of support I wish I had. I want to start. How can I help? It's We go back to Daniel Tiger. Saying I'm sorry is the first step. How can I help? 
And I think that the repair that is, we believe in a God that says repair and redemption is possible. And I believe that that can be as powerful for a kid as the parent who always gets it right. Because modeling repentance to them, modeling apologies, modeling seeking restoration and seeking reconnection, they're going to need to learn how to do that. So it's great if you can model it for them. And so that's what I would say is like, take absolute heart and say, how can I walk with you on the healing journey? What do you need from me to feel like you're enough if you've been that overly critical parent? With my kids, I'm not actively like theologizing them in a way that I think is harmful, I don't think. But I have in my in my psyche, in my body, the remnants of bad theology. And so I'm angrier than I should be. I'm more anxious than I should. I say should. I'm angrier than I should be. I'm more anxious than I have reason to be. And so I have to apologize all the time for the way that my old bad theology is coming out in my current behaviors. And I have started to just think of the opportunity to apologize as a really powerful and great opportunity. Yeah. Awesome. So what, what would be a big win for you if at the end of this book, your readers walk away from it saying what? At this point, I just don't want them walking away being like, what was she talking about? (laughs) You walk away with a clear point, I'll be happy. No, I had good editors who made sure that happened. I think if people walked away feeling less anxious about what they're doing and feeling more free to do what is coming naturally is not really the right word, but feel freer to try things that seem right and that feel right and that lead them toward loving and parent that way rather than parenting in fear and like a compulsion to check and get things right. That scrupulosity you referred to earlier, my therapist refers to it as OCD. There's a disposition and a brain science behind that, but there's also some behaviors that reinforce it. If people walk away feeling freer to do things without this residue and this backlash of anxiety and obsessive checking and, and needing to some, do some kind of penance, that would be a big win. And just a little more freedom to think like there is no right way to do a lot of this stuff. And so the way I'm doing it is probably fine if I'm doing it in love. (laughs) Yep. So bringing up kids when church lets you down a guide for parents questioning their faith Well, congrats on this uh, first and foremost, and thank you for coming on here and and just in a matter of 45 minutes, I'm sure lightening the load a little bit for all of us parents. So I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. (laughs) 